Well, good morning, everybody. It's very strange to be doing this just over a WhatsApp message. I'm also quite upset because I've spent the last three months trying to get my spectacles sorted out so that I can see you when I preach, and now I don't need them anymore. At least I didn't have to iron a shirt this morning. This morning we're going to continue with our sermon series through a selection of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapters 8 to 10, which we've entitled, When Jesus Confronts the World. I'm going to try and keep on going with this series, rather than addressing other topics, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I want you to know that I'm still at work, and preparing new sermons, not just recycling old ones. Secondly, because of something that the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said back in the 1600s, he said that as a pastor, he preached as a dying man to dying men. Uh, clearly, this was in the days before women preachers, but he was just speaking about the urgency that all of our preaching should have, no matter what the circumstances. And thirdly, because I believe that looking at Jesus as we see him in these chapters is just what we need at a time like this. So if you have your Bibles with you, please won't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 13. If you're at home with your family, you could pause at this point and ask one of your children or other families to do the reading for the family, and then forward this recording on to when I begin the sermon. So Matthew chapter 9, from verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Have you ever looked intently at something, but not actually seen it? You're in your bedroom looking into your cupboard and you shout to your mom, Mom, where are my school shoes? And your mom shouts back, they're in your cupboard. And you shout back, no, they're not. And she shouts back, yes, they are. And after going back and forth with her for a bit, your mom comes into your room and looks in your cupboard and there they are. It's like magic. 
or you spend three minutes staring into the fridge looking for the butter and after moving everything around you ask your wife have you seen the butter and she answers it's in the fridge and you look again and there it is right under your nose or you're trying to do one of those dratted Sudoku puzzles that you've spent 20 minutes trying to figure out. You try to work out where the three and the five and the eight should go, and suddenly you look at it again, and it all fits into place. Well, Matthew chapter 9 is all about seeing. Matthew wants us to look intently at Jesus and to see something about him. Matthew wants us to see something that he has told us on the very first page of his gospel. Do you remember the angel's words to Joseph all the way back in Matthew chapter 1? The angel said, you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as God, the God who saves people from their sin, And Matthew doesn't just want us to see this, he also wants us to respond. We're no longer talking here about shoes or butter or Sudoku puzzles. This is far more serious, as if we were seeing a snake in our cupboard, or more positively, saw a present with our name on it in our fridge. We wouldn't just look at that point, we would want to respond in some way. And the same is true in this chapter. Matthew wants us to see and to respond. Now, this theme of seeing is actually a little obscured by our newer Bible translations. There are two Greek words that our newer translations skip over, mainly for easier reading, but we do lose something in the process. So the King James Version of the Bible includes these words in the little phrase, and behold. Behold means look, see, consider. And we'll see two of these beholds as we go along. In fact, the first one is right there in verse 1. Matthew says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. And behold, some men brought to him a paralyzed man. Matthew says, behold, look at this. Why would these men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus? They would only do this if they expected that Jesus could do something about the situation. Sometimes I have problems with my computer, and I have to take it in for repairs, and I only take my computer to someone who I feel can actually repair it. I don't take my computer to the plumber, for instance. I take my computer to the gentleman at Incredible Connect, because I have confidence that he will be able to solve my problem. And these men do the same. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when the disciples were in the boat in the storm. They went and they woke Jesus up. They knew that Jesus was the person to go to. And Jesus recognizes the confidence that these men have in him. In verse 2 we read, When Jesus saw their faith, there's that word see again. Not only does Matthew want us to see something about Jesus, he also wants to show us that Jesus himself sees. Jesus sees these men's faith. It's not the quantity of these men's faith that's important, but the object of their faith. They knew where to go for help. And it was quite a step. You don't carry a paralyzed man to just anyone to get help. These men trusted that Jesus would be able to help them. 
Well, these men arrive with their friend, and it's so interesting. Jesus doesn't engage the man in any small talk, the way you sometimes do when you go to visit your doctor. He says, how are you? You say, I'm fine, thanks, even though you're not, otherwise you wouldn't be there. Jesus just looks at this man and says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if that strikes you as being a little odd. Matthew's actually giving us a shortened account of this incident. If you read Mark's gospel, you find that Jesus was in a house and there were so many people in the house and outside the house listening in that these men who were carrying their friend on his mat couldn't get anywhere near Jesus. And so they manhandle their friend up onto the roof of the house. They then commit the crime of destruction of property as they dig through the roof and then commit the crime of breaking and entering as they lower their friend on his mat with ropes until he is suspended right in front of Jesus. They'd gone to a great deal of trouble to get their friend to Jesus in order for Jesus to heal him, and yet Jesus says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. I would be surprised if they were not more than a little bit disappointed. But remember, this passage is all about seeing. And Jesus here sees more than these friends see, and more than the crowd sees, and even more than we see. Jesus looks into this man's very soul and sees that his greatest problem is not his disability, but rather his sin. And folk, in the crisis in which we find ourselves this morning, our deepest need is not to be healed not to avoid the coronavirus, not to avoid unemployment or poverty or grief or loss. Our greatest need is for forgiveness. This morning, if you don't have reconciliation with God through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus bought on the cross, then you have nothing at all. Boys and girls, I know that at the moment you're missing Sunday school and Uncle Robert and Eternity and Gap and Lizzie and Noah and Tamar. Did you know that 500 years ago, before they invented Sunday school, the church used to teach children by getting them to memorize the answers to a whole lot of questions? These questions and answers were known as a catechism, got nothing to do with cats. But the teacher would ask a question like this, what is the chief end of man? And the whole class would answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I'm glad that Sunday school has become a lot more fun than that, but I think it's a bit sad that we've lost some of the ideas that boys and girls used to know off by heart, because here's an important question and answer for all of us today, whether we're old or young. It comes from a catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 1500s in Germany. It consisted of 129 questions. But the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There are many things that we think will give us hope in this life. Good health, food, a good job, a nice house. But our greatest need this morning is to know this truth for ourselves, to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of our sins and into a relationship with him that gives us everything else that we need for life and for eternity. And can I ask you this morning, do you have that? And if not, what's preventing you from turning to Jesus for forgiveness, even right now? Well, after Jesus has made this extraordinary statement, Matthew gives us another one of his beholds in verse 3. And behold, look, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Matthew wants us to see this because, of course, the teachers of the law were right. To claim to be able to forgive sins was to claim to be equal to God, to do something that God alone could do. In those days, blaspheming didn't just mean using God's name as a swear word. It meant taking attributes of God and attributing them to human beings. Because everybody in Israel knew that it was God alone who forgave sins. Remember in Isaiah 43, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Even when you sinned against somebody else, you were actually sinning against God. Remember David's prayer in Psalm 51. This is after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, and yet he prays to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned. And so the teachers of the law were partly right, but only partly right. I took mathematics on higher grade all the way to matric only because my dad told me that I had to. Sorry, dad. I, I wasn't very good at it. I remember algebra in particular. You remember those long sums in algebra where you needed to show all of your working out? I would start off so well. X plus 2X equals 3X. But then my maths problem would take a slightly different direction. Uh, to tell the truth, it would take a turn for the worse, in fact, and I'd end up with the wrong answer. X equals Y. And that's what's happening here. The teachers of the law get the first part right. Only God can forgive sins, but they get the next bit wrong. The correct answer is, that means Jesus is God. But they don't reach that conclusion. And Jesus knows their hearts, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, literally seeing their thoughts. There's our theme again. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Earlier, Jesus had seen at the heart of the paralyzed man's problem, and now he sees into the very hearts of these men. We look at these men and think, wow, religious people, good people, upright people. But Jesus sees them as sinners with evil thoughts. 
And in order to help them with their maths problem, or rather their logic problem, Jesus says to them in verse 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. Jesus says, in effect, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say that. And you're right. Only God can really say that and mean it. And so to demonstrate that I'm God, I'm going to heal this man, which he does without any fuss or fanfare or ceremony, but with just a few short words. But in doing this, Jesus also uses a very interesting term. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What does son of man mean? Well, in Hebrew, a son of man meant an ordinary human being, a regular human being. If you've read the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, you'll remember that the animals describe the human beings as either sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. A son of man in Hebrew meant an ordinary person. But the most probable background for Jesus' use of this term comes to us from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, Daniel has a number of dreams that really disturb him. And near the end of his dream, he sees God's throne room. And listen to what he writes. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. He looked just like an ordinary person. And yet he came with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Jesus takes that expression and consciously uses it of himself. And we know he's thinking of Daniel 7 because he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The implication being, I had that authority in heaven and now I have it on earth. Jesus knows that he is God. He's operating here as the eternal second person of the Trinity, this is astounding. It changes everything. You can't simply like a man like Jesus. You can't merely admire him. You can't just give him bits and pieces of your time occasionally. I love the way that the Cambridge professor and former atheist C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with someone who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
folk in the time in which we are living right now, it's vital that we see Jesus for who he really is. He is God, and we're going to spend eternity with him, or not, if we so choose. Well, the crowd almost fall at Jesus' feet. Have a look at verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. Literally, Matthew says that they were frightened, and they were right to be afraid. We ought to fear the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Now, the crowd gets a bit further than the teachers of the law do. They recognize that Jesus does have the power to forgive sin, but they're not completely right. Matthew records what they say, but that doesn't mean they're correct. Jesus is not simply a man who's been given authority. He is the eternal son of man who, as God, has God's authority. The crowd's response is not enough. And if you think back over the last couple of weeks in our series, you'll remember that Matthew has recorded a variety of different responses to Jesus. Remember at the end of the demons and pigs incident in chapter 8, an entire village asked Jesus to leave their region. Here we read about the teachers of the law rejecting Jesus. We've just read how the crowd responds. But now Matthew gives us one more possible response. And it's no coincidence that Matthew records his own call to follow Jesus directly after this miracle. Again, he's wanting us to see something. He's saying, if Jesus really is who he says he is and demonstrates himself to be, then our only response can be to drop everything and follow him. Have a look in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. In his book, King's Cross, Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, If Jesus is the king, you cannot make him a means to your end. You cannot come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword at a king's feet and say, Command me. If you try to negotiate instead, if you say, I'll obey you if, you aren't recognize him as a king. But don't forget this. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. If he were only a king on a throne, you'd submit to him because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can submit to him out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. When someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Matthew understands something of who Jesus is. Not everything at this point, but something. And so he drops everything and follows Jesus which must have caused a fair amount of chaos in the Capernaum Inland Revenue Service office that day. But surely there's a problem here. If Jesus is God, if he has the eternal authority and power and glory of Almighty God, then how can someone like Matthew follow him? Matthew was a tax collector. Mark Twain once said that the difference between a taxidermist and a tax collector is that the taxidermist only takes your skin. Now, I hasten to add that tax collectors in Jesus' day were very different from the fine people who work for our own South African revenue services. Uh, 
tax collectors in Jesus' day were hated. Firstly, because they were seen as collaborators. They collected money for the despised Roman occupying forces. And secondly, they were hated because they were cheats. They charged people more than they actually owed and then pocketed the rest of the money. We see something of how people viewed Matthew in the description that Matthew himself gives of the dinner party that he held for Jesus. Matthew invites all of his friends to dinner, and who are the only friends that tax collectors have? Well, other tax collectors, of course, and people who are of such low social standing that they don't mind uh, being with tax collectors. Uh, Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees thought that they were right with God. They believed that the good things that they did made them right with God. But Jesus sees things very differently. The people of Jesus' day, and sometimes we ourselves, tended to think in terms of two categories of people, righteous people and sinners. To Jesus, though, there is only one category of people, sinners. But there are sinners who deny that they are sinners, and there are sinners who admit that they are sinners. Have a look from verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying, in effect, you know, if you think you're healthy, you'll never go and visit a doctor. It's only when you recognize that you're sick that you go and seek medical attention. And people who think that they are right with God never experience a genuine relationship with him because they're too busy holding on to their righteousness. God can't give them his love and forgiveness and himself because their hands are full of all the good things they think they've done. I love the way Don Carson puts it in his commentary on this passage. He says, the simple truth is that if you feel good enough for Jesus, he doesn't want you. He came for the sick and the sinful, the broken and the needy. He invites sinners to him and he forgives them and transforms them. He does so because he died and rose again for sinners. And this fact that Jesus came to save sinners has three practical implications for our own lives today. Firstly, the fact that Jesus came to save sinners should fill us with confidence. Maybe there's someone listening to this and you're thinking, ah, yes, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the hidden things that are in my life, things that I've never told anyone because I'm deeply ashamed of them. God can't forgive me. My dear friend, if you're in that situation this morning, listen again to Jesus' words. I hope you can hear these as if for the very first time today. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And if you're not feeling worthy, that's precisely the attitude with which to approach God And Jesus will take your unworthiness and use it to his glory, as he did with Matthew. Matthew goes from liar and cheat and thief to penning the gospel that we're studying this morning that has brought millions to faith in the same Jesus who changed Matthew's life. Secondly, the fact that Jesus came to save sinners should fill us with gratitude. 
You know, sometimes we hear amazing testimonies of how people have come to faith in Jesus. You hear of a young man who's been involved in drugs and gangs and violence and murder. He spent time in prison. And while he's been in prison, he's gone along to a church service and listened to a sermon by the chaplain. And he's come to faith in Jesus and his life is radically changed. Or we read about a young woman from another faith who for years has been devoted to the religion of her family and one night has a dream about Jesus and against all opposition and threat becomes his follower. And when we hear testimonies like that, we think often to ourselves, wow, what an amazing testimony. But you know, those of us who perhaps grew up in a Christian home and had the good fortune not to commit the more obvious sins, if we take an honest look at our lives, we also have to say, wow, what an amazing testimony that Jesus would choose someone like me. Every single one of us is a trophy of God's grace. And if we cannot honestly say that, then it's clear that we haven't really understood God's grace. Again, Don Carson writes, Contrary to popular opinion, Christians don't think of themselves as better than other people. Indeed, many converts discover within a few short weeks of their conversion that their hearts are more deceptive and sinful than they ever thought possible. The euphoria of conversion, if there was any, gradually dissipates to be replaced by a puzzling and growing sense of sin. Attitudes and reactions we display that never troubled us in the past now appear as abominations to us. But there's an immense benefit. Our growing awareness of the magnitude of our sin can only result in growing thankfulness for the riches of the pardon we have received. When we're reminded that Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous but sinners, far from being offended, we are relieved. You see, no less a person than the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then thirdly, the fact that Jesus came to save sinners should fill us with compassion for the outcasts of society, often the ones who are minority groups, the homeless, prostitutes, addicts and pushers, gays and lesbians, AIDS victims, those who are infected with COVID-19, as well as the more hidden outcasts of our society, such as divorcees, single parents, the elderly, white-collar alcoholics, and so on. We need to get really close to them and eat at their table. Again, Don Carson writes, We will not develop a posture of self-righteousness towards those whom society dismisses, for we know that Jesus came to call the despised and disgusting elements of society. Not only so, we know that includes us. And as we get to know our hearts better, we begin to realize that there is scarcely a sin we cannot conceive of committing ourselves if only our circumstances, parents, upbringing and the like had been different, if only we'd not tasted forgiveness from a pardoning God. Christians can never afford to adopt haughty stances towards other sinners. They're never more than poor beggars telling others where to find bread. Well, our time is gone. I wonder if you've ever been in one of those situations where you haven't realized who you were speaking to. 
I heard about a lady who fainted in the shop, nothing serious, and another lady went over to check on her, but before she'd got very far, a young man pushed her out of the way and said, Stand back, I've got a first aid certificate. And so this lady dutifully stood back while this young man checked the patient's pulse and listened to her breathing. And after a few seconds, the lady who'd been pushed aside tapped the young man on the shoulder and said, When you get to the part where you're supposed to call a doctor, I'll be right over here. Sometimes not recognising someone can be amusing. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes it's fatal. This morning, Matthew has said to us, Behold, look, consider. Do you really see who Jesus is? Not just someone who meets our needs, but Lord and God. The God who came to save us from our sins. And as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? May God bless you in this week as you trust in him. Amen.